going to see the superiority of Jesus Christ from the book of Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews, and I'm not going to make dogmatic statements on who that is. Scripture is vague on that, probably on purpose. I don't know for sure. So whoever the writer is, is he's getting right to his point here, right from the very first verses. And in fact, we're going to look at the first three verses here today. And they're telling us that Christ is superior to everyone and everything. If you ask me what is the theme of Hebrews, probably the simplest way I could say it is that Christ is superior. Christ is the best in every way. And so we need to keep in mind that all through the book, Christ is presented as being better than everyone and everything that was before him, including, by the way, he's absolutely better than the Old Testament, that Old Covenant, what it provided. So we need to keep that in mind as we as we jump right into this context here. Hebrews 1, let's start reading together from the very first verse, verse 1. Long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the book of Hebrews is showing us that Jesus is superior over everyone and everything. And we don't have time to to look at all of those today. We'll just look at what is this text teaching us? And so we'll see how is Christ superior in this text. Number one. I want you to notice the text is showing us that Jesus Christ is greater than the prophets. He is greater than the prophets. This text is teaching us that. And I want to just take out some of these phrases here and and kind of hopefully explain them, make sure we understand what they're talking about. Notice in the very first verse, it says that God spoke long ago. God spoke long ago. Now put quotation marks on the screen here on the PowerPoint for you showing it's it's coming from the text of verse 1. Now, this is an indication of how God wrote the Old Testament. Its purpose was to prepare for the coming of Christ. The Old Testament was pointing to Christ. It was, it was making promises, and the New Testament is showing us the promises, how those promises were kept. And some are still yet to be kept. So whether by prophecy or type or principle or commandment or whatever, it's making preparation for Christ. Now the senses of mankind, as marvelous as they are, God gave us five senses, and they're amazing. They are incapable of reaching beyond the natural world. Right? You, you can only sense the things, you know, what you taste, what you touch, you hear, you see right? So forth. And so for us to know anything about God, then God has to tell us. That's the way 
one of the main ways he's chosen to reveal himself. So that's why it says long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. God chose to reveal himself through speaking. And so he could never, uh, we, anybody, could never know God if God didn't speak to us. And thus, in the Old Testament, the writer here reminds us that God spoke. Praise God He did. But I want you to notice how God spoke. The writer of Hebrews tells us a few things here. Number number two, notice that God spoke at many times. God spoke at many times, verse 1 says. So the Old Testament was delivered over approximately 1,500 years. So I hope you already know this. Uh, Hopefully I'm preaching to the choir on this. You know, it wasn't all written at the same time. It was was written over about a a period of 1,500 years, about 40 different writers, human writers. Of course, they're all inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, theologians would call this progressive revelation. In other words, God has has revealed the Scriptures to us progressively, not at one point in time, but over a period of 1,500 years. And so that's why Hebrews is saying that God spoke at many times. But not only that, verse 1 also says that God spoke in many ways. In many ways. Now, many ways there includes many literary ways, or we might say genres, or literary styles. You know, of course, that some of the Old Testament is narrative or stories. You love those stories, whatever they might be. You know. Anyway, you find them in, splattered throughout the Old Testament. But not all the Old Testament is narrative or story. Some of it's poetry. And so you can find something there. Hopefully, if you're not a poetry person or a story person, you can find something there that, that you enjoy. But the many ways here is also including the types of content. So some of the content of the Old Testament would be law. For example, in in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you'll find, in fact, there's what, 613 laws. (laughs) A lot of Leviticus is law, and that's why a lot of Christians find it hard to read that book. Uh, But some of it's prophecy. In fact, I think I heard, what, 33%, 35% approximately was originally prophecy. So you'll find the prophets like Isaiah and Daniel and so forth talking about that. But some of it's also doctrinal in nature in its content. Some is ethical or moral. Some of it's warning. Some of it's encouraging, even though you're not a Jew. But here's the point. It's various content, various genres, and that's why God is saying here in verse 1 that He spoke in many ways. But having said that, don't lose track of this, that it's all God speaking. All God speaking in many ways. And then number 4, we see here in verse 1 that God spoke to our fathers. The fathers there are referring to the Old Testament people. Uh, they w- we, we might classify them as our spiritual ancestors. And, and most of us, I don't think any of us in this room would classify ourselves as a Jew or a Hebrew by ethnicity. And that's okay. We, 
we still consider them our spiritual ancestors. Through, through them came the Word of God. Through them came Jesus. And if you are a Jew or a Hebrew, then these are your physical ancestors. And that's why it's, and, and this book's primarily written to the Hebrews. That's why it's called the letter to the Hebrews. And that's why it's talking about these, that God spoke to our fathers. But notice number five, that God also spoke by the prophets. You say, well, what is a prophet? A prophet is God's messenger in this context. The idea is that a prophet is someone who speaks to people for God. You know, that's why we call him God's messenger. Now, how did God do that? Well, God spoke through these people. He gave them the words to say. And so he speaks through the words of the Old Testament. He used these people as his instruments. But we also need to keep in mind that God himself was behind them. He's enlightening them. He's energizing them. And even other religions, by the way, still claim that Jesus is a prophet. Even though they don't get everything right about Jesus, a lot of people can agree at least Jesus was a prophet. Prophets are revered, rightfully so. Prophets are attacked when they're not agreed with and martyred and so forth. And so they're, they're important people bringing God's message. But the good news in verse 2 says that in these last days that God the Father has spoken by God the Son. And of course, that's referring to Jesus Christ. We are living in these last days. Many would consider these last days to have started from the time of Jesus Christ. So the whole New Testament, this new covenant, that last part of your Bible there is centered around Christ. So the Gospels, being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're telling us Christ's story, His coming, and what did He teach? What did He do when He was here? And they end with Christ going to the cross and dying and being buried and rising again and ascending to heaven. So they tell of His story. The epistles comment on Christ's person and His work. And give give uh, the head of the church's message to the church, but then the, the last book in our Bible tells of the culmination, different picture of Christ. What's going to happen at the end? We see a totally different Christ. We see an exalted Christ. And so, from the beginning to the end, the New Testament is Christ. No prophet had been given God's whole truth. But Christ Himself said in John 14 that He is truth. So He's God's full and final revelation. So how is Christ superior? Well, verse 3 just really opens the floodgates here for us, showing that Christ is preeminent in every way. And this verse is so rich that we need to spend some time here, okay? So let's see, let's see how verses 2 and 3 in particular show us how Christ is preeminent. How He is the superior one. In what ways is He superior? Well, these verses give us seven excellencies of Jesus Christ. Number one, Christ is inheritor. 
He's inheritor because verse 2 says that in these last days, He, Jesus, has spoken to us, or sorry, God the Father has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. He's the heir. He's the inheritor of all things. And since Jesus is the Son of God, He is the second member of the Trinity, then guess what? He's the heir, the inheritor of all that God possesses. He is that inheritor. And so everything that exists then is going to find its true meaning only when it's coming under the final control of Jesus Christ. One day, one day we look forward to Christ coming again. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's going to happen. Scripture says so. And He's going to inherit all that rightfully belongs to Him. But number two, it says here that Christ is Creator. He is the Creator. As verse 2 wisely says there at the end of verse 2, that through Him, He created the world. So Christ is the agent, if you will, through whom God created the universe. And it's interesting, you'll see the end of verse 2 says, what did He create? The world. The Greek word for world there is showing that Jesus Christ is responsible not only for creating the physical earth, the planet earth, but He's also responsible for creating time, space, energy, and matter. And we, you see that in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you see, see Him creating time, space, energy, and matter. And so Christ created the whole universe and everything that the universe requires for it to function, as it does. And by the way, He did this without effort. Because Genesis 1 just says He spoke it into existence. It was easy. It wasn't hard. And so, let's just take a moment to consider our universe. Maybe, let's just even, we won't even take the whole universe. Let's just take a little part of the universe. A little, very little part of the universe. In fact, just one little galaxy in this vast universe. And let's go within this little, this little galaxy and come within that and look in our solar system just for a moment here. Okay, you'll see a picture here, part of our solar system. Our sun is approximately 93 million miles from the earth. Sorry, I haven't translated this into kilometers for you, but you get the idea. It's vast. 93 million miles. You'll see on the, of course, hard to get the vastness of that just by that picture on the screen. And then you, you, you come away from the sun, you get to, to eventually to planet Earth, and we find that the moon is only 211,000 miles away from Earth. And by the way, uh, somebody's figured this out. If you were to keep walking, you could get to the moon in 27 years. If you just kept walking for 27 years, you'd get to the moon in 27 years. Our moon is amazing. Sometimes we kind of take it for granted. And so you, you see a picture of the earth and the moon on the screen here. But 
keep this in mind, that a ray of light traveling at 186,000 miles per second would reach, that, that means you reach the moon in approximately one and a half seconds if you're traveling at the speed of light. Okay, so keep that in mind. Even though the moon is 211,000 miles away, it only takes one and a half seconds for light to go from Earth to the moon. And if we could keep traveling at that speed, it would take you two minutes and 18 seconds to reach Venus. It would take you four and a half minutes to reach Mercury, which if you remember on that previous screen there, Mercury is the, the planet closest to the sun. It would take you one hour and 11 seconds to reach Saturn. And then if you just keep going, eventually you get to, I know Pluto's been downgraded from a planet, but let's not get too technical here. But if you, eventually, if you keep going at light speed, you, you get to Pluto, which is 2.7 billion miles from the Earth, and it takes light only four hours to get there. Having got that far, you're still only a little ways within our galaxy. <laughs> our galaxy, we call it the Milky Way galaxy. It's an amazing galaxy. And by the way, that, that little blue area there is our little teeny solar system within a very vast Milky Way galaxy. And according to my understanding from what we learned from astronomy is we're just a one of billions of galaxies within the universe. It's mind-boggling. And it's good for us to think about this. That Jesus Christ created it all. Where did it all come from? Who conceived all that? Who made it? Well, it can't be an accident, surely. <laughs> it can't be. Somebody had to make that. And the Bible tells us who did. The Bible tells us in places like this here that... Jesus Christ is the maker, the creator of it all. But not only is Jesus a creator, Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that Christ is radiator. He is radiator because it says in verse 3 that He is the radiance of what? What is He radiating? The glory of God. Radiance there just means to send forth light. He's sending forth God. Literally, Jesus is the manifestation of God. When Jesus was on earth, He said, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. So nobody can see God the Father. We'd be consumed if we did. And so the only radiance that reaches us from God is then has to be mediated to us from Jesus. And through Jesus. So... Think of it this way, just as rays of the sun are radiated and, and, and they come to the earth as warm light, so Jesus Christ is glorious light of God the Father shining into the hearts of men. And just as the sun was never without, can't be separated from its brightness, they go together, the lights and the in, in that brightness. So, so God is never without and can't be separated from the glory of Christ. 
You can't separate Jesus and God the Father. They go together. So never was God without Him and He without God, and never in any way can He be separated from God. Yet the brightness of the sun is not the sun, is it? And that's the same with God the Father and Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus is fully and absolutely God, yet He is a distinct person. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Distinct persons in one God. And so we'd never be able to see or enjoy God's light if we didn't have Jesus to look at. Because Jesus Himself even said, in John 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So Jesus is the radiance of God's glory here. So he can transmit that life to your life and to my life. So that we then in turn can then radiate the glory of God. We're, we're to put on display God's glory. We're to be the light, the salt of the earth. And so we live in a dark world, though, don't we? And there's the darkness of evil, injustice, separation, disease, death, and so much more. There's the moral darkness. People are blinded by their godless passions and their own lust. And so into this dark world, then God sent His Son. I hope you remember that at Christmas time. That's what God did. Into a dark world, He sent His Son. And so without the Son of God, guess what then? There would only be darkness. But in verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. Christ is radiator. But verse 3 also tells us that Christ is representor. He represents someone and something here. Because verse 3 says, that He, Jesus, is the exact imprint of His nature. The words exact imprint, interesting words, they're translated from the Greek, of course. That, that Greek term is used for a die or a stamp that is pressed into a seal. Now, I've given you a picture of, of, a, of a stamp that's been pressed into hot wax. And the point is, that's the same Greek word that was used for that is used here for Jesus. He is the exact imprint of God. So the design of the dye is reproduced in the wax. What you get in the wax is what is in the stamp. You say, well, what's the point of this? <laughs> there is a point to this. It's showing that Christ is a representor. Jesus is, a, is the exact reproduction, if you will, of God. He is the perfect personal imprint of God in time and space. So if you want to know God, we have to look at Jesus. Because He's the representor. And it's also interesting to me that the word translated here, exact imprint also refers to the image on a coin. Let's take the old Roman coins that these Hebrews would have been familiar with. It, uh, the idea is here that the coin perfectly corresponds to the image on the die. 
So here's how they used to make Roman coins. They would take a hammer, they would take the die, and then they would take uh, a piece of metal, and the, the hammer hits the die, which hits the piece of metal, which leaves an imprint. That's how they would make their Roman coins. So that's the idea here. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. Jesus is completely the same in His being as the Father. You see, you see Jesus, you see the Father. However, we need, as we think about this, there is, there is an important distinction. Okay, Yes, they're one, but both exist separately. Just like the die and the image exist separately from each other, so it is with God the Father and God the Son. There is a distinction. There's two persons. So Christ is representer. Verse 3 also tells us that Christ is sustainer. He is sustainer. Look at the next phrase in your Bible. It says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So we've seen that Christ is creator. He made all things, but this verse is telling us then He holds them all together. Interesting Greek word there. English word upholds. Uh, just means that He supports it. He maintains it. He is not like the one who makes the clock and winds it up and then takes his hands off, like some have said. No. He maintains what he has created. And by the way, it's in the present tense here, implying it is a continuous action on Jesus' part. He continually holds and maintains and supports his creation. So everything in the universe is sustained even right now as we speak by Jesus Christ. And then the next second, Jesus continues to hold it up. And then the next second, he's continuing. Do you get the point? Until he destroy, destroys this present earth and heavens, he will continue to hold it together and maintain it. Now this is so important, even for our own lives, that Jesus Christ do this. Lest you miss the significance of that little phrase... We need to understand that our entire life is based upon the laws that He has built into His creation. And we've been reminded of God's power and how we even stand and sit on shaky ground, haven't we? The ground beneath our very feet has been shaking over the last couple of weeks, hasn't it? Because of the earthquakes. And every time we hear or feel an earthquake, let that be a reminder to you, my friends, that Jesus Christ is the sustainer. And He can shake the ground whenever He chooses. And it can have great consequences and even disastrous consequences when the ground does shake. just shows a little bit of His power. But think about this, my friends. Can you imagine what would happen if Jesus just chose to relinquish His sustaining powers over the laws of the universe? Let's just think about a few together. What would happen to us 
Well, I can tell you the end result would be we would cease to exist. We would just go right out of existence if he did. I'll give you one example. If he suspended the law of gravity, what do you think would happen to all the people who are stuck to the earth by gravity? Everything on this, you, you just go flying off into space. You die. Right? It would be utter chaos if Jesus Christ chose to stop gravity. <laughs> That's just one little example. I'll give you another one. Take, for example, the sun. The sun is very hot. In fact, I have read that the sun is 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you were to be instantly transported to the sun, of course, you'd be instantly consumed. It's that hot. And you can be thankful that this sun is exactly where God, Jesus, put it when he created it. Because if you were any closer to the sun, you'd be burnt up. This earth would be burnt up. If we were any farther away from the sun, then we'd all freeze to death. So God put it exactly where it needed to be to sustain life. Another example would be the moon. It's only one little part of God's creation, but it's important. If the moon did not retain its exact distance from the earth in its rotation around the earth, do you realize we would be flooded two times every day? <laughs> Everywhere that mankind lives would be flooded twice a day if, if, the, if the moon had a greater pull on the tides. If it was any closer, we'd be in trouble. Another one that's interesting is if the atmosphere did not remain at its present density, even if our atmosphere was thin just a little bit, many of the meteors that we, we see coming into our atmosphere being burnt up would be hitting the earth. We'd either all have to live underground or we'd have to have really, really strong bunkers to live in. Because we would be constantly bombarded by meteors. Have you ever thought about that? To be honest, I don't, I don't give a whole lot of thought to that. Because the creator of this earth has put an atmosphere around the earth to protect us. He is sustaining us from being struck by meteors. <laughs> Praise God. So how does the universe stay in this delicate balance? Well, certainly not by accident. Jesus Christ sustains it. He's monitoring all the movements, every meteor that comes into our atmosphere, every earthquake, every tidal movement, and so forth, is all by his, the work of His hand. I hope you're comforted as you think about Christ's power to uphold this universe. His power, by the way, applies to every one of us as well. Let's not forget it is, it is a personal power. For example, we read in Philippians 1, verse 6, a very wonderful promise. I love it because it says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so when Christ begins a work in our hearts, we, we hold on to it and we're sustained in all ways through his power. He even sustains our spiritual life not just our physical life. And so when your life is given to Jesus Christ, 
Don't forget, my friends, he holds it, he sustains it, he maintains it. And one day he's going to take you into God's very presence. Number six, Jesus Christ is preeminent. Again, we see that he is a purifier. In fact, he is the purifier. Because verse 3 says, after making purification for sins. And that's an amazing statement because the Bible says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ, my friends, went to the cross on your behalf. He was your substitutionary atonement. He he died my deserving death, thereby taking the penalty of my sin upon Himself. And the Bible says that by faith, if we accept His death and we believe that He died for us, He's going to free us from the penalty of sin. He purifies us from the stain of sin. Even the the guilt of sin is removed. And so the man whose sins are forgiven has them forgiven only because of Jesus Christ. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ will never be applied to us unless by faith we receive Jesus into our lives. Unless by faith we believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have no hope. He is the purifier. He's the only one who can purify us from our sin. And as a result of that, we have point number seven in verse three, which says that Christ is ruler. Notice it's after making purification for sins. What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love that. He sat down. He ascended to heaven. And so Jesus is taking His place here at the right hand of God. And the marvelous thing about that statement here is that the sacrifice becomes our great high priest. And He sits down. Which is different, by the way, from Old Testament priest. It is in great contrast to all the priestly procedures that you see in the Old Covenant. You'll notice in this picture here on the screen, uh, there you don't find any seats in the Old Testament tabernacle. You don't find any seats in the Old Testament temples. In the Jewish temples, they didn't have seats for the priest. The priest had no place to sit because God knew that was not appropriate never appropriate for them to sit because they constantly had to work. They constantly had to make sacrifices. The priest's responsibility was to sacrifice, to make more sacrifices, to shed more blood, and to keep doing this over and over again. And so the priests offered sacrifices daily, and they did not sit down until they went home. But the Bible says that Jesus offered one sacrifice, and when He was on the cross, He then said, it is finished. So, He went and He sat down. Notice He's sitting down with the Father at His right hand, showing us that His sacrifice was accepted and it was complete. It was done. 
So what could not be accomplished under the Old Covenant, what could not be accomplished by the Old Testament priests, and that Old Testament system of sacrifices was now accomplished by Jesus Christ, and it was done for all times through one sacrifice, through one person. So Christ is ruler. I don't know if you've picked up on this or not, but here we have a beautiful portrait of Jesus Christ in three verses. Three little verses. We've seen the preeminent Christ in all of His offices. We've seen Jesus Christ as a prophet. In fact, He is greater than all the other prophets. He is the prophet of prophets, the final spokesman for God. Long ago, God spoke through the prophets, but... Verse 2 says, now in these last days He has spoken through God the Son. He is the final spokesman for God. And so we've seen Him as a priest. What is He doing? He's atoning for us. He is interceding on our behalf as our great high priest. But we've also seen Him as King, the ruler, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords who controls sustains his whole universe and is now seated on his throne. So my friends, this is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. The one who is superior in all ways. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you? It means everything, my friend. It means everything. Don't lose sight of this. Because to reject Jesus Christ means you are shut out of His presence into an eternal hell. So let me leave you with this proposition. Let me leave you with this proposition. My friend, God wants you to receive Jesus Christ so that you can enter into all that He is and has. This is the hope. This is the choice that we all must make. So my friends, continually, even as believers, if you are a believer, continually choose Jesus Christ because He is superior. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, may we know this reality to be true in our lives that Jesus is superior. Open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, that we would know this, and in our heart of hearts, really believe this so we would live this. Beliefs do have consequences. So may we exalt Jesus Christ, know that He is superior in all ways over everything, so that He would be honored and glorified in our lives, in our church, in this world. May this not just be a thing of having fire insurance. But may this be an, an, eternal, an eternal reality that is lived out in every way. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see You through Jesus. May we know that He is greater than the prophets. May we love and respect the prophets of the Old Testament because they've delivered Your Word. But may we not lose sight of Jesus as we read Your Word. May we recognize how it's pointing to Him and lifting Him up and exalting Him. 
May we love Christ with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and our entire being. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.